0: I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster.
1: radio this is the broadcast as heard on kpfk 90.7 fm in los angeles Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ, Central Coast, Queso, Cottage Grove, and KEPW, Eugene. On Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle KODX, Goldendale, Washington KVGD, and Minneapolis St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. Plus also two coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Nicholsandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you have me, Angie Cuero, sitting in for Brad and Dez. Hey, did you feel that national emergency shuddering through us all? I did, too. It's not a border wall or lack thereof that constitutes our emergency. It's the imminent danger of having an incoherent, venal, irrational, vindictive buffoon with a scattershot brain trying to drag our country into bankruptcy and fascism. You came here for the even-handed rhetoric, right? (laughs) Donald Trump revealed all of the above as he triumphantly played his latest gotcha card, agreeing to the omnibus spending bill while throwing a toddler's tantrum over what he didn't get. And as you have undoubtedly heard any number of people point out, he said himself he didn't need to do this. He just wants it to go faster. Everything he wants to prove that he is in charge of, he is the Lord Master of all silly Constitution be damned. His press conference to declare his imaginary national emergency was so revealing, so revealing. First of all, he made it clear that when you don't give a baby his toy when he first screams for it, he's going to scream for all his toys. Any parent of a two-year-old will tell you that. He didn't get his first $5 billion he wanted, so now he wants eight.
0: So we have a chance of getting close to $8 billion. Whether it's $8 billion or $2 billion or $1.5 billion, it's going to build a lot of wall. We're getting it done. Plenty of congressmen and others in
1: seats of power warned in advance they would immediately pursue remedies if he pulled the shenanigan. And he was asked about that by an ABC reporter in the Rose Garden.
0: Uh,
2: Mr. President, what do you say to those, including some of your Republican allies, who say that you are violating the Constitution with this move and setting a bad precedent that will be abused by possibly Democratic presidents in the future? Marco Rubio Well, not has too many
0: people, yeah. Not too many people have said that. Uh, but the courts will determine that. Look, I expect to be sued. I shouldn't be sued. Very rarely do you get sued when you do national emergency. And then other people say, oh, if you use it for this, now what are we using it for? We've got to get rid of drugs and gangs and people. It's an invasion. We have an invasion of drugs and criminals coming into our country that we stop, but it's very hard to stop. With a wall, it would be very easy. So I think that we will be very successful in court. I think it's clear. And the people that say we create precedent, well, What do you have, 56? Or a lot of times, well, that's creating precedent. And many of those are far less important than having a border. You don't have a border, you don't have a country.
1: Another reporter, this one from NBC, pointed out that Trump had some cutting words for President Obama in a similar
0: situation. Let's go. Let's hear it NBC. Come Thank on. you, Mr. President. I just want to
2: say, when, uh, in the past, when President Obama tried to use executive action as it related to immigration, you said the whole concept of executive a- uh, order, it's not the way the country's supposed to be run. You said you're supposed to go through Congress and make a deal. Will you concede that you were unable to make the deal that you had promised in the past and that the deal you're ending up with now from Congress is less than what you could have had no. before a 35-day well, I, shutdown?
0: I went through Congress. I made a deal. I got almost $1.4 billion when I wasn't supposed to get $1. Not $1. He's not going to get $1. Well, I got $1.4 billion, but I'm not happy with it. I also got billions and billions of dollars for other things, port of entries, lots of different things, the purchase of drug equipment, more than we were even requesting. In fact, the primary fight was on the wall. Everything else we have so much, as I said, I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. But on the wall, they skimped. So I did, I was successful in that sense, um, but I want to do it faster. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. And I don't have to do it for the election. I've already done a lot of wall for the election, 2020. And the only reason we're up here talking about this is because of the election. Because they want to try and win an election which it looks like they're not gonna be able to do. And this is one of the ways they think they can possibly win is by obstruction and a lot of other nonsense.
1: Now, in the wake of another attack on a member of the media, it is notable to hear him declare his allegiance again to the right-wing Commentariat. This is Nora O'Donnell here. Mr. President, could you tell us to what degree some of the outside conservative voices help to shape your views on
0: this national emergency? I, I would talk about it. Look. Uh, Sean Hannity has been a terrific, terrific uh, supporter of what I do. Not of me. If I changed my views, he wouldn't be with me. Rush Limbaugh, I think he's a great guy. He's a guy who can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. For three hours he speaks. He's got one of the biggest audiences in the history of the world. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. Try speaking for three hours without taking calls. Taking calls is easy. Okay, I'll answer this one, I'll answer that one. He goes for three hours, and he's got an audience that's fantastic. Wait. uh, They don't decide policy. In fact, if I went opposite, I mean, they have somebody, Ann Coulter. I don't know her. I hardly know her. I haven't spoken to her in way over a year. But the press loves saying Ann Coulter. Probably if I did speak to her, she'd be very nice. I just don't have the time to speak to her. I would speak to her. I have nothing against her. In fact, I like her for one reason. When they asked her, like right at the beginning, who's going to win the election? She said, Donald Trump. And the two people that asked her that question smiled. They said, you're kidding, aren't you? Nope, Donald Trump. So I like her. But she's off the reservation, but anybody that knows her understands that. But I haven't spoken to her, I don't follow her, I don't talk to her, but the press loves to bring up the name Ann Coulter. And you know what, I think she's fine, I think she's good, but I just don't speak to her. Um, Laura's been great, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson's been great. I actually have a couple of people on CNN that have been very good. I have someone on MSNBC the other day. They did a great report of me. I say, where the hell did that come from? I think it was the only one in over a year.
1: And he immediately follows this with an attack on, first and foremost, and predictably, CNN's Jim Acosta. But then, much less predictably, on Stubborn and Marvelous Playboy's Brian Karim. Yes,
2: Jim Acosta. Uh, Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I I wonder if you could comment on uh, this disconnect that we seem to have in this country, where you are presenting information about what's happening at the border, calling an invasion, talking about women with duct tape over their mouths and so on. And yet there's a lot of reporting out there. There's a lot of crime data out there. There's a lot of uh, Department of Homeland Security data out there that shows Border crossings at a near record low. That shows undocumented immigrants committing crime at lower levels. That shows undocumented criminals or undocumented immigrants committing crime at lower levels than native-born Americans. Um, what, what do you uh, say? Uh, to you, your,
0: don't, you don't really believe that stat. Do you really believe that stat? What do you take look you at this. our federal prisons. I believe
2: I believe in facts and statistics. Okay, and data, any more Quick, let's go. Let me just ask you this: What do you say to your critics? Who say that you are creating a national emergency, that you're concocting a national emergency here in order to get your wall because I you couldn't the get it through other bombs.
0: ways. What do you think? Do you think I'm creating something? Yeah. Ask these incredible women who lost their daughters and their sons, okay? Because your question is a very political question because you have an agenda. You're CNN. You're fake news. You have an agenda. Uh, the numbers that you gave are wrong. Take a look at our federal prison population. See how many of them, percentage wise, are illegal aliens. Just see. Go ahead and see. It's a fake question. Mr. Yes, go ahead.
2: Mr. President. Mr. President. Can I ask yeah. a follow-up? Mr.
3: President.
0: Thank you, Mr. President. Just to follow up on that, unifying uh, crime reporting statistics, numbers from your own Border Patrol, numbers from this government show that the amount of uh, illegal immigrants are down. There is not violence on the border, and that there's most not violence on the there's border? not as much violence you know, oh as. wait really? you had wait 26 minute, wait minute, people. Let me finish the killed. question, please. Let me finish the question. Two weeks please. ago, 26 people were killed in a incident on the border. I understand what you're saying. A mile saying. away from where I went. I under I was there. I understand. That's not the question. The question is, well, do we forget about that? No, I'm not forgetting about. It. I'm asking you to clarify where you get your numbers because most of the uh, DEA. Crime s- reporting statistics that we see show that drugs are coming across at the ports of entry, that illegal immigration is down, and the violence is down. Okay. So, what do you base okay. your uh, facts me, let on? Let me come on. Let's go. Uh, of, and secondly... sort of, uh, no, no, you get uh, one. You get uh, well, one. Well, well the Ready? second Just sit down. Is, Wait, sit down. Sit down. Could you, could you please sit answer down? It? You get one um, question. S- uh, I please. get my numbers from a lot of sources, like Homeland Security, primarily, and the numbers that I have from Homeland Security are a disaster. And you know what else is a disaster? The numbers that come out of Homeland Security, Kirsten, for the cost that we spend and the money that we lose because of illegal immigration. Billions and billions of dollars a month. Billions and billions of dollars, and it's unnecessary. So your own government stats are wrong, are you saying? No, no, I use many stats. Could you share those stats. stats with us? Let me tell you, you have stats that are far worse than the ones that I use, but I use many stats, but I also use... Homeland Security. All right, next and question. Do you, wait a minute. Just a quick follow-up. Right Go, please. You know, if
1: I were teaching a graduate course in logic, I would give an instant A and the rest of the semester off to the first student who annotated every one of Trump's logical fallacies in today's press conference. They were flying thick and fast. Of course, whichever poor kid that is would have at least a month's work on their hands. We can start with the fact that he answered a question about faulty statistical claims with, quote, look at these grieving mothers. Okay, not only is that a non sequitur, but it cheapens the loss of those bereaved parents. Way to tap dance in the blood, Donnie. Arguably, the most alarming thing about the press conference was the childlike sing song he fell into as he daydreamed his national emergency's fate tiptoeing through the court system.
0: So the uh, the order is signed and we will have a national emergency, and we will then be sued, and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there, and we will possibly get a bad ruling, and then we'll get another bad ruling, and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court, and hopefully we'll get a fair shake, and we'll win in the Supreme Court. Just like the ban, they sued us in the Ninth Circuit, and we lost, and then we lost in the appellate division, And then we went to the Supreme Court and we won. And it was very interesting because yesterday they were talking about
1: the ban. This is not a well man. So, expectedly, the challengers and challenges are already lining up. Attorneys general in Arizona, California, and Nevada already said that they would file against it. Nancy Pelosi is not going to let it go by without challenge. We knew that. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Representative Joaquin Castro of Texas plan to introduce a bill to stop President Trump's emergency declaration. A Democratic aide confirmed Castro reached out to Ocasio-Cortez to get her on board, and the pair was reaching out to others to build support. House adjourned Friday morning, so the timing of the introduction remains up in the air, but the chamber will be conducting pro-forma sessions next week that would allow for the introduction of bills. That's from TheHill.com. Now, Bloomberg outlined some ominous opinions that, in short, the road to overturning the declaration is, in fact, uncertain. He may, in fact, get away with it. Unsettled law here and lots of unknowns. But that same article included real facts. You have to argue about real facts. You can't just say facts anymore. You have to assert and ascertain they are real facts because that's the way we live now. Actual facts that contradict all of Trump's alleged justifications. And among those, and I'm quoting from Bloomberg here, legal arguments aside, the statistics Trump has cited to justify an emergency declaration include Immigration and Customs Enforcement's arrests of hundreds of thousands of, quote, aliens with criminal records over the past two years. ICE enforces immigration laws within the U.S., not on the borders. Its numbers include people convicted of violent offenses, but also those convicted of nonviolent crimes, including illegal entry or re-entry. Trump calls the southern border a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs, suggesting a wall would stem the flow. In fact, <laughs> it's like the anti-Trump phrase, in fact, most illegal drugs are smuggled into the country through ports of entry. Today's national emergency, I'm still with Bloomberg here, today's national emergency declaration so soon after Congress reached agreement on border security makes clear... The president is trying to create a crisis, not solve one, said Beth Worland, executive director of the American Immigration Council. Quote, the most pressing immigration issue we confront at the border is one the president himself has manufactured by unlawfully turning away asylum seekers and cruelly separating parents from their children. Now, lest we think that everybody on the right particularly the press on the right and the commentariat on the right, lest we think that they're all sanguine about this. Check this out from Aaron Dunn. This is from the Washington Examiner, of all places. In using an emergency declaration to get more money for Trump's wall, Republican leadership, both the president and Senate majority leader, do almost exactly what they have long criticized political rivals of trying to do, using the Constitution or at least the law, as malleable documents capable of being molded into whatever version suits partisan ends. The problems at the border are rooted in a policy issue, not an emergency. It's something Congress needs to work out. The mere fact that Congress hasn't acted doesn't constitute an emergent crisis, requiring funding sources outside the normal constitutional order. Indeed, Even Trump made clear that illegal border crossings have at some of their lowest points, have been at some of their lowest points in decades, tweeting, quote, because of the Trump administration's actions, border crossings are at a still unacceptable 46-year low. That data is correct, by the way, the article notes. It goes on, in its relentless determination to demonize political foes, the right overlooked one of its own making, national security should never have been allowed to become the carte blanche it has become. Conservatives will live to regret this use of emergency powers because it will be used in many ways they don't like. Or won't like, as the article says. One lone Republican has had enough of Trump and the hatred that he nurtures, Bill Weld, He served as the governor of Massachusetts, says that he will run against Trump for the GOP presidential nomination. Now, here's uh, Bill Weld quoted in The Washington Post. It's time for all people of goodwill, and our country is filled with people of goodwill, to take a stand and plant a flag. In every country, there comes a time when patriotic men and women must stand up and speak out. In our country, this is such a time. Weld opened his remarks in the first primary state with an unflinching denunciation of the president. Quote, he acts like a schoolyard bully. And Republicans in Washington who, I love this, Republicans in Washington who, quote, exhibit all the symptoms of Stockholm syndrome. We don't need six more years of the antics we have seen, he said. Now stay with that story in the post because there's a fascinating little tidbit further down in the story. In an interview this week, well noted that even if he does not succeed, a potential side benefit from his perspective would be weakening Trump for the general election. A Republican who so gets it, he is willing to throw the election to the Democrats. That's how I read it. And that is patriotism. Not unrelated, one of those stories that is way too common today, The ACLU has taken up the case of two women who were stopped by the Border Patrol for speaking Spanish.
2: So can you tell us in the video, please, why you ask us for our IDs,
1: please?
0: Ma'am, the reason I asked you for your IDs is because I came in here and I saw that you guys
3: are speaking Spanish, which is very unheard of up there.
1: Yeah, this is from the BBC. Ana Suda and Martha Hernandez were held by a U.S. Customs and Border Patrol officer last May after he heard them speaking Spanish in a grocery store. Agent Paul O'Neill questioned those U.S. citizens for about 40 minutes. He asked to see identification. Both of them believed they were being detained. The ACLU filed the suit, which which seeks to stop the Border Patrol from detaining anyone without cause for speaking Spanish or for their accent. Can you believe we have to say this? Don't stop them for their accent. As well as compensatory and punitive damages. That's from the BBC story. Closing arguments start today in San Jose v. Ross. That is the case challenging the late addition of a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The addition is a transparent gamble by the administration, in case you couldn't see through it. I'm sure you you can. It's a a gambit to depress participation in the census by those people who tend to favor Democrats in elections, the non-white people. Fewer of those who get counted, the better off for the GOP. On the Facebook front from the Washington Post, the Federal Trade Commission and Facebook are negotiating over a multi-billion, with a B, billion-dollar fine that would settle the agency's investigation into the social media giant's privacy practices, according to two people familiar with the probe. The fine would be the largest the agency has ever imposed on a tech company, but the two sides have not yet agreed on the exact amount. If the talks break down, the article says, the FTC could take the matter to court in what would likely be a bruising legal fight. In other tech news, Amazon's decision not to pursue its new headquarters in Long Island. Two back-to-back stories covered by multiple outlets. This is really telling. I mean, they're showing up on the same pages in some case. The first is Amazon's bitter recriminations against activists for being all never Amazon with undertones of how unfair that is. And running right alongside that, this story, which originated at CNN Business, Amazon hasn't paid any taxes to the U.S. government in the past two years. It received hundreds of millions of dollars in federal tax credits in 2017 and 18. That might seem nuts, the article notes, considering Amazon is the third most valuable company in the world and earned a record $10 billion, with a B, dollars last year. But critics of Amazon's tax bill aren't accusing Amazon of doing anything improper. CNN quotes Matthew Gardner, senior fellow at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, which it says is a liberal think tank. Quote, this is tax avoidance, not tax evasion. There is no indication of any wrongdoing, except on the part of Congress. You know, I live south of San Francisco by about oh, 20, 30 minutes, and I am just a few minutes north of Facebook in East Menlo Park. There's a ton of good reading out there about what happens here in California and other places as the tech super campuses creep along. Gentrification beyond all imagination. I mean, flats going for $6,000 a month, highway traffic that doesn't budge while the infrastructure falls apart because the right taxes aren't being collected, an ungodly increase in the breach between the haves and the have-nots. I mean glaring. People live in cars and trucks just outside Google and Facebook campuses. There are the glowing stories about real estate in the San Francisco Chronicle, which at the same time is publishing interviews with people living on the street. One of those was heartbreaking today, asked the best thing that happened to him this week. 58-year-old Ricky answered, Someone said hey, and called me over and pulled a bag of clothes from the trunk of his car. I got this Chicago Bulls sweatshirt. I really needed some new clothes. Mine were all stolen. New York has dodged a bullet. There's no loss there. Coming up, we want to negotiate why U.S. policy toward international kidnappings needs a serious overhaul. It's coming up on the Bradcast.
2: Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by Bradblog.comslash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at Bradblog.com/slash donate. Thank you.
1: Here's the broadcast. I'm Angie Caro in for Brad and Desi. Journalist Joel Simon is executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. The committee was approached back in 2012 by the family of fellow journalist James Foley, who was kidnapped in Syria. While the committee was considering its options and its liabilities, Foley was beheaded by his captors. So, Joel Simon wants us to take a fresh look at why the countries who refuse to negotiate for the return of kidnapped citizens overseas are the same ones that see the highest death rate in those cases. He's written a new book, We Want to Negotiate, and I talked to him for my show, In Deep with Angie Coiro. Here's part of our conversation. You mentioned in the book that this policy of we don't negotiate with terrorists yeah. it came out of Richard Nixon's mouth in answer to a reporter yeah. asking a question, yeah. well, we don't do that. And that became policy because it came out of his mouth. And And now I'm hearing that there's a principle they adhere to that if we pay, they'll just ask for more, they'll be emboldened. And it sounds like the statistics don't really support that either. So how is this policy evolving?
3: Well, so there's been a couple of things. You're, you're right. So the policy, you know, the first sort of wave of of, of kidnappings that occurred targeting Americans was in the in the '60s and, and early '70s. There was a wave of kidnappings in Latin America targeting American diplomats, and the strategy by leftist uh, by leftist insurgencies in Latin America and the. Goal of these kidnappings was actually to put pressure on the host government. So it might be, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, Brazilian leftists or the Monteneros in Argentina, um, or the or the leftist guerrilla group in Uruguay, and they'd, you know, kidnap an American diplomat, and they say, unless our, uh, 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 you know, people who are in jail are released, um, you know, we won't release the diplomat. And so it was a coercive strategy. And then there there became, then you started to see a, a second wave of kidnapping, you know, targeting di- mostly diplomats in the Middle East. And there was an incident in 1973 where a Palestinian terrorist group um, attacked the Saudi embassy in Khartoum and took a bunch of diplomats hostage, including a couple of a couple of Americans. And one of their demands was for the release of Sirhan Sirhan, who was the um, uh, obviously the uh, convicted uh, uh, assassin of Robert F. Kennedy, who was the opponent of Richard Nixon in the in the um, 1968 uh, presidential election. So Nixon was happened to be having a press conference the next day, and he was asked, you know, are you going to um, uh, Give in to these terrorist demands, and he said, "You know, we won't pay blackmail. Absolutely not." And then these two Americans were taken out and shot. And so that, and and so after that, I talked to the person who was sort of involved in the formulation of this. They were starting to do research. Does no concessions work? They didn't really have an answer. But after. Um, uh, these two diplomats were killed as a result of, of, of or in response to President Nixon's comment, comments, it became, as the person who developed the did the research told me, a policy written in blood. And, they, you know, they, they started looking for, you know, justifications to a certain extent. A lot of that came after. And it wasn't until but it wasn't until the Bush administration and into the Clinton administration that there, beca- there was a formal written policy that articulated. Before that, was a more of a political slogan, but then it became a policy. Um, and then, in the aftermath of um, the terrible incidents in Syria, I mentioned, you know, James Foley and the other Americans um, who were killed, the families of these Americans were so outraged by the way they were treated. Uh, by the government, that they they basically demanded that there be a, rev- a review of the policy. And President Obama agreed to that, but the first framework he put in place was, we're not going to look at no concessions. No concessions is untouchable. That framework is going to stay, but we will develop better structures to support the families in these situations, and so that 's kind of where we are now. We have a much better system. The families uh, have better support uh, there' there 's there's, there's more responsiveness it 's a more humane policy. but the central and uh, President Obama also made a very important public announcement he said no American has ever been prosecuted for paying ransom. He didn't say no American ever would be prosecuted because he couldn't make that commitment because who knew uh, what the next administration would be. But he said no one has ever been prosecuted, uh, and that gave the family some comfort, but that's kind of where we are today.
1: One of the wild cards that enters the picture is the insurance industry yeah. around kidnapping and ransom. Yeah. Find a need and fill it, I guess, yeah. you know. Um, and you introduce us to someone who is is in the industry, and yeah. he had a really brutal introduction to the industry when yeah. he went to Bolivia. Was that right? It
3: was. It was actually you know, Colombia, Bogota. So I, I, so one of the things that I didn't really know about. People who work in high risk environments know a little bit about this, and I knew something about it, but I didn't know the details. Is something called kidnapping and ransom insurance. And remember, I talked about you know the kidnapping market. It is a market, and one of the players in the market is this insurance industry. And how does it work? It started in Europe. Uh, in the 1960s when, again, there were leftist groups uh, in Europe that, you know, in, in Italy and in Germany that were, you know, carrying out kidnappings of wealthy industrialists to finance their cause. And uh, wealthy families in Europe, you know, felt very vulnerable. And the insurance industry kind of developed this product. And basically what the way it works is, if you are a wealthy individual, you can get kidnapping and ransom insurance. And what it means is that if you are if someone, a member of your family is kidnapped and you have to pay a ransom, you will be reimbursed. And the, the, the logic of this is that uh, you're not going to pay more because you, you, you can only be reimbursed for the assets you actually have. And uh, it, um, it, you have to raise the money you have to sell your house mortgage your house do whatever you need to do because they're not going to give you the money they're only going to reimburse you at the end so the negotiation is credible but it keeps this terrible crime it's a terrible terrible crime but it doesn't destroy you for the rest of your life so this is and it's kidnapping is terrorizing but it's very rare so this was a very good insurance project a, a product and then it spread to industry so if you, if I employ people and they work in a high-risk environment I kind of have an obligation to do what I can if they're kidnapped I can't just leave them out there so you know I, I I'm gonna pay ransom if I have to and you know I want to manage that cost and, and be responsible to my employees so I'm gonna get this insurance and it created this global market and then I profile this insurance broker named Doug Milne he lives in London and the European market had become saturated, and he said, well, where's, where are places around the world where people are getting kidnapped and they don't have insurance? Aha, uh-huh, Colombia. Colombia was like the, the, the epicenter of kidnapping. You had uh, the Medellin cartel, you had these criminal groups, uh, you had uh, leftist guerrilla groups. And- Wealthy Colombians lived in total fear of kidnapping, and so he brought this product uh, to Colombia, um, and it was very successful. He's now a very successful wealthy guy, and um, but I, you know I talked about the complexities that emerged has emerged in the uh, industry. Since 9 11. One of the great innovations of the kidnapping ransom industry was that when you were kidnapped, you know, you would negotiate on your own. So you're overwhelmed at some terror group or what have you. You're trying to negotiate with them for the life of your loved one. And the insurance companies quickly realized that the families weren't equipped to do this. So they maybe were paying more than they should have. So they created a specialized service of hostage negotiators. So if you are insured and you and a family member is kidnapped, the next day someone will show up at your door who's a professional negotiator. They know how to do this. They know what the going rate is for the, for people in certain environments. They know what the ransom is going to end up. They know how long it's going to take. And they support you uh, through the entire process. And globally, it is perfectly legal with this insurance to pay ransom to criminal groups remember how i said that the u.s does not negotiate with terrorists and doesn't support that and well if you're kidnapped by the mexican drug cartel guess what you're in luck because you can pay the ransom and there's no criminal uh, liability for doing so the, the u.s government will probably even help you uh, to ensure that you're not defrauded you know like even help is go so far as to deliver the ransom in some instances um, and you if you have kidnapping and ransom insurance. You will be reimbursed, but if you're kidnapped by a designated terrorist group under the Patriot Act, you could have this insurance. It's kind of a gray area. Maybe you get the hostage negotiator, uh, but you can't pay, may, or you could pay, but you better hope you're not prosecuted. You're in this terrifying uh, gray area, and um, you know that's kind of you know that's kind of why this is such a complex, difficult ordeal. Um, you know, for for American families.
1: And that's one of the areas where what a government is willing to do, how much they're willing to get involved, there's what they say and what they do. And it depends on which government you're talking about. Governments across the world have different relationships with these kidnapping and ransom people. How much they're hands off, how much they're really willing to deal behind the scenes, it varies.
3: Yeah, it varies tremendously. So if you are um, a European and you come from a country uh, where they routinely pay ransom in political cases they'll, and even if you have insurance, they'll kind of push the insurance person aside and say, "Well, take this over we're going to negotiate uh we're going to get you home and if you're you know if you're an american you're in this you're in this this gray area where you're where you're largely on your own, and the the government uh is probably You know, to the extent that they're involved, they may even be an impediment. So um, yeah, it's it's a it's 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 sort of depends on what country you come from. But the irony of this, you know, the the kind of logic of the no, another logic of the no, you know, the no concessions. policy and this is a much more substantive argument so I really didn't find much basis for the argument that it reduces the risk but I did do there's unquestionable that if you're paying ransom to terror groups they're going to do terrible things with that mm-hmm. so you you do want to reduce the amount of money going to terror groups and it's a legitimate government interest to uh, attempt to do that um, and ideally if nobody ever paid ransom if that never happened then it wouldn't exist as a crime, because it, there would be no reason that people would engage in kidnapping. But as I said, that will never happen, right? Mm-hmm. We all know that there's always somebody um, who will pay ransom. So paradoxically, the the, the the structure we have in place now, where some countries pay and others don't, actually makes—may uh, increase the amount of money going to terror groups, because If you have a group of hostages, the best way to put pressure on the governments that will pay is to kill one of the hostages, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have some hostages that have a lot of value and other hostages that have no value – i.e. the ones from countries that won't negotiate, you can actually kill the hostage from the country that won't negotiate, get the political benefit, the visibility, the recruitment that comes with that when some of these terror groups use it for recruitment, while you put pressure on the European governments, which do pay, and increase the amount of ransom. So I found the whole framework is deeply fraught, flawed, even for achieving this basic objective, and that you know, what would be much more effective is to have a common um, consensus around the se- one single point that everyone agree- involved in these, and I interviewed you know, family members, and I interviewed government officials, and I interviewed security experts, and I talked to the insurance industry. It, what they all want to do is keep the ransom as low as possible. So this this dichotomy between, you know, concessions and non-concessions really doesn't work, but everyone can work together to try and reduce the amount of ransom pay that would actually bring people home alive and reduce the amount of money, hopefully, going to criminal and terror groups.
1: And there's another element that you introduced, and this was in the story of Qatar working yeah. with um, working with France on an abduction. Yeah. And there are all these alliances. Like where the U.S. won't negotiate, but they yeah. might manage something with a third country to get something done. But what yeah. do you? The third country can be playing both sides yeah. of the room. Yeah, well,
3: that that I that I did find, and you know, I want to make another point. Um, you know, kidnapping is not really a crime that that's that exists in the United States. You know, wh- why why is that? Um, it's because, and I talked to like former FBI negotiators. Uh, it's because. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work as a crime. Why doesn't it work as a crime? Because there's a point of vulnerability, and that's when you get the money. you got to get the money and pick it up. So what does the FBI do when you're kidnapped in the United States? Uh, they pay the ransom. Not only do they not ask, the, they, they actually come up with the money, and stashed around the country in Federal Reserve banks around the country are $300,000 in that can be used to pay rant, ransom if Americans are kidnapped domestically. Domestically, there's no distinction between criminal and terror groups. It's, but it's basically a crime that doesn't exist anymore because this strategy has been so effective. It's basically pay the money, get the person out alive, and then go after the group that's carrying out the kidnapping, arrest them, you know, destroy them, and then you get the person back alive— but it doesn't work internationally because, you know, it's very hard to um, capture these groups. And the other thing about the no concessions policy I would point out is that it's, um, you know, at least the way it's perceived um, by groups around the world, it's applied very inconsistently. So if you are an American civilian and you're kidnapped by the Taliban, uh, the Taliban is a designated terrorist group. You cannot pay ransom. If you are American uh, service member. Some of you may remember Bo Bergdahl. The you know um, uh, he was a um, uh, a soldier who wandered off his base uh, for some bizarre reason in Afghanistan. He was picked up by a Taliban patrol. He was held under terrible, miserable conditions for, I think, six years, and then he was exchanged uh, for uh, five um, uh, uh, prisoners who were held at Guantanamo. Well, the reason that. The U.S. essentially negotiated for him was because under the Geneva Conventions, there is a provision whereby um, there are prisoner exchanges are contemplated. So this is, of course, completely confusing to the quote-unquote terror groups. They, they don't understand why you know, the U.S., which has a no concessions policy, will negotiate for American service personnel. As I mentioned, if you're kidnapped in the United States, um, which, of course, is very rare, the U.S. will not only negotiate it, will actually pay the ransom on your behalf. So the whole framework for this, basically what I found, it's a political slogan. It's not really a policy. Mm-hmm. It's a political slogan.
1: But it does leave the room for those third-party countries to get yes. involved. And you could be forwarding a, a negative agenda in those third-party countries as well. Yeah.
3: I mean, one thing I found was – so you mentioned Qatar. So Qatar is a very interesting place. It's a t- very wealthy Gulf state, um, which uh, has you know one of the largest uh, reserves of, nat- of natural gas uh, in the world. And it has a policy – a strategy, rather, of sort of playing both sides of the fence. It sort of, you know, has... um, uh, There are conservative elements in... um uh, Qatar, which both for, you know, reasons of ideological alignment and strategic reasons, you know, have relationships with some shadowy um, Islamist groups. Uh, but they also have close ties with the West. They host the American uh, the largest um, uh, uh, naval base in, in the Middle East. The Sixth Fleet is based there. They have uh, strong relationships with the U.S. military, etc. So um, when Westerners are are, are kidnapped, um, they'll sometimes sort of serve as intermediaries. And this is a strategy which is, you know, you know and they'll, they'll not, the U.S. will not allow Qatar to pay ransom for Americans, but other countries will. And uh, this has been criticized in some quarters because basically what it means is that um, Qatar is able to channel money towards Islamist groups who are fighting the West, with whom it's aligned, and by and gain the release of, of Western hostages, so it gets a big thank you for giving money to groups that are, you know, essentially enemies of the West. So it's a it's a very complex uh, strategy. You know, when I when I talk to Qatari officials, they say this is simply a humanitarian impulse, and we want to help. But of course, the money ends up in. In the hands, and they have influence with these groups of, of groups that are, you know, aligned with Al Qaeda, and that are obviously a threat to Western interests.
1: You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Angie Kerr with my interview with journalist Joel Simon. More after this break. I'm Angie Cuero. You are listening to the broadcast more with Joel Simon, author of We Want to Negotiate and executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. If there were like a novel-style yeah. set piece, it would be what happened in Syria with yeah. so many hostages yeah. being brought to the same place at yeah. the same time. And were I a playwright or a writer, yeah. I would say, let's bring in a hostage who believes he doesn't ever want to be paid for. He believes yeah. that he doesn't yeah. want to be paid for. And then we have the one from a country who is willing to pay. And then we have a man and we have a woman. It's, it seems like in, in this series of events... Every possible idea about who gets kidnapped, why, and how to deal with kidnapping was all together in one yeah, place.
3: Yeah, So yeah, basically, what happened in the um, in, in in late 2012 and two th- 2013, this new proto group, which was forming in Syria, which eventually became the Islamic State, started grabbing Westerners. At first wasn't clear that they even knew what they were going to do with them. They were just, you know, if they, you know, that the sort of risk environment in in Syria was changing at the time. Journalists and aid workers were able to work there with some modicum of security. And then, you know, the kind of more, um, uh, I I don't know if I'd call them secular, but the the kind of rebel groups that were less hostile to the West and maybe welcome journalists because they wanted journalists to document that terrible atrocities being committed by the Assad government, that shifted, and Islamist groups sort of came to the fore, and they were targeting Westerners. And it, this happened so quickly that, you know, they were, they were, you know, a whole dozens of Westerners who were grabbed by this group. And in the book, um, I profile two hostages who were taken together, and they were aid workers. Uh, one was Italian. His name is Federico Matka, and one was British and his name was David Haynes, and David Haynes was hired, you know, to be the security person uh, for Frederica Matka, and he had a background uh, in the British uh, military, and he, you know, knew this was a high-risk kind of work, and he had told his brother, you know, listen, I know what I'm doing, I know this is risky, but I'm, you know, uh, served in the military, and I don't believe in ever negotiating or certainly paying ransom. And if you ever pay ransom for me, ever, I will never speak to you again, not one pound. And so he, yes, you're right. This is like a morality play. He was kidnapped along with this Italian um, hostage, and, um, you know, I was able, you know, to, to to speak with him at length, to speak with this, you know, Federico, and to talk to um, David, to, person who was killed, his brother Mike, and, you know, sort of reassemble the, you know, the kind of dialogue that they had and the personal conflict that he was experiencing. Because when David was first, you know, taken, he, he, he knew that, you know, he had told his brother, you, you could never pay a dime for me. So he sort of imagined that his fate was sealed, whereas Federico was Italian. And he, you know, knew that, and he certainly hoped that he would be ransomed. You know, and Federico was hoping that they could there could be some deal where they would be, you know, leave together. But in the end, you know, the, the Islamic State group that was holding them sort of figured out, you know, who was going to pay and who wasn't going to pay. And they, you know, you know were able to extract huge ransoms from the Europeans. And they basically murdered uh, all the, you know, Americans and British hostages who, 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 who would not pay. And, you know, f- at the time... Um, you know, they were having this dialogue and this debate, and um, David was seeing, you know, the European hostages leaving one after the other, one after the other. They were 19 all in together. And, um, you know, he realized, you know, of course, the money going to the Islamic State was going to be used for bad purposes, but they had so much money because they had access to the oil fields. They had overrun the banks in Mosul. They were, you know, basically extorting um, the, the, the the population. Uh, the local population. Um, so the amount of ransom payment, while significant, was not determinative in terms of their ability to continue to to function. And he started to, you know, to waver. You know, he knew he was going to die. Was he giving his life for a purpose, or, or not? And Federico, in the end, you know, I don't know what David finally felt when he when he was killed, but Federico, in the end, you know, felt that this is wrong-headed, and that, as he put it to me, and I I kind of think of this as a mantra, you know, the principle is you don't pay. But that doesn't have to be your policy. That doesn't have to be your policy. You know, sometimes you have to sacrifice. And basically I come away after this really difficult period of research and investigation, and then, you know, the book is full of lots of stories and anecdotes with a belief that, each hostage situation is different. There are no two hostage situations that are alike, and that a rigid policy actually costs lives and encumber and 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 and, and uh, reduces the likelihood of a successful um, uh, recovery of the hostage. And so, I'm really, I really believe that you know you have to look at each case differently, and and look. And, and look at maximum flex and have maximum flexibility. There are many circumstances in which the, the strategic cost of paying is too great, you know, and you just, you know, government just can't support it. But there are other cases where maybe it's worth it, especially in the internet age where, you know, hostages, you know, the, these, these videos that, 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 that can be made of murdering hostages, you know, we don't really appreciate how valuable those are to these groups because they use them for publicity they use them for recruitment, and I wasn't right clear to me how this works, but you know if they if they send out these horrifying videos on social media, then someone contacts them you know with a supportive message, then they reach out to them and they try and reel them in and recruit them so these These terrible videos have a tremendous value to these groups, and so ensuring that they don't have hostages to use in these in these videos. There's a national security framework, you know, for in some cases certainly supporting families' efforts to bring bring their loved ones home.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Let's talk about the role of the press. Yeah, responsible coverage in the section of the book that focused on Spain. There was an incident yeah. where uh, I think it was a newspaper editor published an editorial that said, silence, yeah. the government is working. Yes. And it was this supportive motion to say the government's doing what they need to do. Let's all be quiet about this, which is the opposite of, of the French you know, let's yes. all parade in the streets. Yeah. And I'm trying to imagine if in an American situation, I could ever imagine the press saying, let's just be quiet about this. The government's doing its thing.
3: Um, You know, it may surprise you that, yes, that happens. Um, It's called a media blackout, and I have very mixed feelings about it. So how many of you are familiar with the case of David Rode? Okay, David Rode was um, uh, a journalist for, for, for The New York Times. Who was kidnapped uh, in Afghanistan and then transported into Pakistan and held by the Akhani network, which is a, you know, a group aligned with the with the Taliban, and he was held for um, for about seven months, and there was no reporting. It was it was it was blacked out, and that was because there was an understanding among media organizations, you know, that they they were not going to report on this because it could jeopardize, you know, it could increase ransom demands and jeopardize his ability to come home. So, you know, the media, the American media, will, in certain circumstances, um, you know, uh, suppress coverage of these hostage incidents. Um, and, and, you know, again, I, lo- I look at this. I, I think there's an argument to be made that in the, you know, if there's a highly sensitive negotiation that's taking place or if the hostage takers explicitly say, you know, if you report on this, we're going to kill the hostage or something like that, or the first instance, you know, where you just don't know what's happening and it's confusing, you know, kind of putting a lid on on, on media coverage, you know, may be, may be appropriate. Uh, but the longer it goes on and the more, um there is an active um, conspiracy of silence. The more question I have about whether whether this is this is an appropriate role for for the media to play. I don't, you know, it's usually the governments. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like the governments and the hostage takers want silence, so that tells me that it's you you know to the extent that you can subvert that and get public attention, because ultimately it's going to require, I mean, that's what the French figured out. You know, it's going to require, in most cases, the government intervention to resolve these cases. And they're more likely to become engaged if there's media attention. Mm
1: -hmm. You were talking on NPR. Yeah. Someone texted in a message to the effect that, look, these reporters go out in their unprotected areas. They know what they're doing. There were cases in the book. For example, there was a tuna book that yeah. knew that it was going outside protected areas, yeah. there were two journalists yeah. who had been embedded and went outside the embedded yes, area. Yes, they were
3: French journalists. And
1: it, it makes me think about what the responsibility of the individual is. I was appalled that whoever it was who texted NPR was yeah. bloodthirsty. Yeah. Yeah. But there is that question about does how that person end up and ended up in that situation have any bearing in how it's dealt with? How much personal responsibility are they assuming?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know... The, the, you know, a lot of sometimes people get kidnapped because they do stupid things. Yeah, and they don't, they don't, you know, they don't use common sense. Um, and then the question is, you know, what obligation do we have to 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 them as individuals? There are some journalists, you know, who do everything right and are, you know, providing a high highly risky and vital. Um, service that we all benefit from, and you know, something goes wrong, and you know, I think we as a society, um, you know, have an obligation to defend them because they're they're doing something that's 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 vital to our understanding of the world, and risking their lives to do it. Um, but it, and you know, it's hard to separate. You know, sometimes you really don't know. I mean, and and how can you have a policy that says you know, you know, it, ultimately, you know, people may be more um, supportive. And that support gets translated into more political pressure when the, when the cases are more uh, sympathetic. But I don't think you can have a framework where you go, well, if you're stupid, you know, we're just gonna we're just gonna leave you behind. <laughs> you know, good luck. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk about talk about somebody who whose behavior was responsible for his situation, Bo Bergdahl. Yeah. I mean, Bo Bergdahl wandered off a military base. He had this. You know, who knows what he, what he was thinking or whether he was suffering from some mental illness. But he had this cockamamie theory in his head that he could wander off a military base, uh, travel to uh, another base, and, you know, would that, that he would get the attention of the commander and then he could denounce, you know, the mistreatment he had experienced. And he was taken by the Taliban. And the U.S. military doesn't leave you behind if you're, if you're stupid. The fundamental thing we have to recognize is that journalists play, play a vital role, certainly. Aid workers, people who are vulnerable to this kind, of, this kind of threat play a vital role, and we should be grateful and we should stand, stand behind them. But occasionally somebody will do something dumb, but I still think we have a responsibility to do all we can to bring them home.
1: Uh, two questions from the audience, both about policy, Yeah. and both acknowledge that you've said that there needs to be some case-by-case flexibility. Would there be an advantage for there to be a uniform policy about whether they're paid or not, whether we pay them? And the second question is, which policies might be consistently applied?
3: I think that the first thing is, you know, how do you articulate? What the policy is. How do you express it? So right now it's a no concessions. We don't negotiate. You know, if you're thinking about, you know, what keeps the hostage alive, it's their perceived value. So it's a sort of opening gambit. You know, whether you're going to pay or not, there's no reason to announce it. You know, there's no because what what purpose does it serve? It's just a, it's just a political slogan. It doesn't really, you know. So so you want to? I call it a policy of strategic ambiguity. You know, that's what you want. You want you don't want them to know what you're going to do. You know, maybe maybe you'll never pay. But why announce it? Because if as soon as you announce it, the hostage lo, lo, loses value. And the other thing about this, you know, whether you pay or you don't pay, as I mentioned, the French, you know, they they don't actually pay. You know, from the from the from the treasury. You know, they find other ways of supporting. The payment so there, there you know there's a lot of um, creative strategies that you can use that you know might um, alleviate the suffering for, for the families and you know another thing I should point out is if you're an American and you're taken um, you're put in jail by a rogue government uh, and you're effectively a judicial hostage um, there's a book out by my friend and colleague Jason Reyan called Prisoner. Jason was um, arrested in Iran. He was a journalist for the Washington Post, and uh, he was, you know, held as a sort of measure to try and coerce the United States around the nuclear negotiation. And the State Department, in the context of the nuclear negotiations, found a way to engage with Iran, and they actually worked out a deal. You know, some Iranians who were held in the United States were released. Some assets that were frozen from Iran were returned. Um, And, you know, I kind of feel that um, Americans, so if you're held by a state, a rogue state, the American government will engage and negotiate and try and win your freedom. You know, I think Americans who are kidnapped by terror groups are, on the, are owed the same kind of creative responses. And so, I just don't think there's a single policy that's going to work. It needs to be case by case. It needs to be, you know, ex- examined within the context of, you know, with this, the kind of national security implications of any particular approach. And it needs to be, you know, there needs to be a lot of creativity applied in these uh, situations, not a rigid policy framework.
1: Also from the audience, the two women who were kidnapped by North Korea and then sent free when Bill Clinton met with Kim Jong il were rescued because of contacts Lings Lisa Ling's sister had. Did Obama's administration approve of how that was handled?
3: Um yes. Yeah. I mean that was another example of where where it was, you know, it was a rogue was a rogue state, and what they wanted was a senior official to go over there and basically sit side by side by um, Kim Jong Il and Clinton, you know, played that role. So that was a situation where essentially a concession was made to a rogue state to get some Americans home. And the um, Trump administration uh, actually has a—it's interesting. Trump has made this partially because I think Obama struggled to a certain extent. I think Obama was so focused on the strategic imperative that he was sometimes blinded to the humanitarian considerations. He didn't see—he didn't—he thought the, you know. The political benefit was cheap, you know. He just, he just. I think that was his impulse. You know, Trump is just looking for the political win. <laughs> so he actually is very engaged on policy. I mean, on on on, on the um, on the issue of, of hostages, judicial hostages so, as well. So that are that are unjustly detained. And he's got a pretty good record of bringing them home. And then the, the, you have the opposite concern with Trump, which is, you know, what's he giving up in exchange? Right. What's he giving up in exchange? Because he seems indifferent to the strategic considerations.
1: Mm-hmm. Joel Simon. You can find that one-hour interview online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. Brad and Desi are back for the next go-round. I'm Angie Carro. I'm sure I will see you again soon. Until then... Good luck world.